God, we do thank you that you love people who are far from you. This concept that when we were still enemies, Jesus, you died for us. And what God is like our God who loves his enemies. And we thank you that our story is that we once were enemies, but we've been rescued and redeemed. Jesus, our hearts are just overjoyed and humbled and silenced by that truth. And we pray that you would do more of that glorious work, that miraculous work of saving lost people. God, we want to see you draw more people to yourself to worship you. And we want to be part of that, not just through prayer, but also through relationships and conversations and generosity and joy. Um, God, would you accomplish these things? We thank you for this morning, this time that we have to gather and worship and learn about worship and be encouraged to worship you. And Lord, all these things are at the heart of why we worship you, because of your saving grace in your son, Jesus. And so be magnified this morning through the proclamation of your word, through the singing of the songs, through the gathering of your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to switch things up here at Maricopa Springs for the next couple of months. Um, Typically, our approach to preaching is we take a book of the Bible uh, and we work our way slowly and methodically through that book. That's how we generally approach the teaching or preaching of God's Word because it forces us to look at everything that God has to say in the context in which He has said it. Maybe another way of saying that is that slowly working your way through the Bible in kind of a methodical way prevents you from avoiding the parts that you don't like and overemphasizing the parts that you do like, right? Avoiding the difficult things and, uh, and instead just spending time in the comfortable, easy things. Um, but occasionally we do take a break from that method to just look at what the scriptures teach about various topics. Uh, Sometimes we do one topic over several weeks, or sometimes we do several different topics over several different weeks, but that's what we're going to do the next couple of months. We're going to take a look at a topic I'm calling, How the Gospel Works. How the Gospel Works. And when I say that we're going to consider how the gospel works, we're not going to primarily talk about how the gospel itself functions. We're going to touch on that, but more specifically, we're going to consider how the gospel works upon us, how the gospel works in us, how the gospel works through us as it relates to a couple of different topics, different subjects. We're going to consider how the gospel works itself out in us. Maybe that's the best way of putting it. The gospel itself is pretty simple. Um, There's a couple different ways that we can summarize it, but essentially repent of your sins And believe in Jesus, who's the Son of God, who died to set you free from sin, to forgive you. So we'll lay that foundation of kind of the gospel this morning for a little bit, and then we're going to talk about how this truth goes to work upon our hearts, okay? Today our topic is worship, which means that the question for our consideration is, how does the gospel work? to lead us into worship. 
How does the gospel produce worship in the life of Christians? Now, the answer to that question is actually super simple. You probably already can formulate an answer to it, Uh, but we're going to spend our time kind of reflecting on this question because it's worth reflecting on. So I'm going to give you my answer to that, and then we'll spend the the rest of our time reflecting on this answer, okay? The gospel, and I think, yeah, we've got it up there? Okay. The gospel works in our hearts to produce worship as we celebrate the truth that Jesus saved us from God's wrath through his own death and instead has given us eternal life. That's kind of a lengthy definition. So let me read it again while you mull it over as you look at it. The gospel works in our hearts to produce worship as we celebrate the truth that Jesus saved us from God's wrath through his own death and instead has given us eternal life. Before we look at a couple different texts that tease out this idea, let's define a couple different words that are going to lay a foundation for us, okay? First, what is the gospel? Let's go into a little bit more specific detail here. What is the gospel? And I acknowledge this is a very basic question, but it's worth reflecting on again and again and again and again as Christians. Sometimes the best way to get a definition is to understand what it's not. So let me tease out what the gospel is not. The gospel is not a religion. It is not. The gospel is not a set of rules. It's actually not a list or a series of commandments. That's not the gospel. Because if it were any of those things, then the gospel would make you proud when you achieve it. But instead, the gospel humbles us when we understand it. Because the gospel is not about human effort at all. The gospel is not about church attendance. The gospel is not a process of self-improvement. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, and let's look at a very concise scripture that tells us what the gospel is. And if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to grab one off the table, or even if you want to just raise your hand, I'm sure Phil would be happy to bring one to you. Um, I don't put scripture up on the screen usually because I want you to get familiar with your Bible. And if you don't know where Romans is, use the... um, the table of contents. There's no shame in that. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. If you want to know what the gospel is, take that Bible home, put a bookmark in it right now, and open up to this passage and read it. But I'll tell you simply, the gospel is good news. That's what it means. Literally, that's what the word means, the Greek euangelion. And that's to say the gospel is good news about a series of events that occurred at a point in history. The gospel is the report that God became man in the person of Jesus. He died on a cross for all who repent of their sin. And this is good news. 
Then he rose from the dead to live forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. And as a result of this good news, those who trust Jesus are saved. And so friends, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died to set people free from slavery to sin and to death. And in this sense, you have to understand, the gospel is not about you at all. It's not. It is all about Jesus. It is all about what he has done and who he is. Now, listen, in a secondary sense, the gospel is about you. In the sense that this is good news for you if you repent and trust in Jesus. If you receive this good news, you believe that it occurred, then you repent of your sins and you acknowledge your need for this God, you trust in his grace, then you are saved. You, you are set free from slavery to sin and death. And in that sense, the gospel is about you. You receive it, and it benefits you. But the news report itself is about God. It's about what he has done, which is why it's humbling. Let me try and illustrate it uh, this way. My in-laws, my wife's uh, parents, have like a little cabin up by Lake Roosevelt. And there's been a fire that started in Apache Junction. Maybe you heard about this fire, uh, the Woodbury Fire. It started early on in the month of June. And it's been slowly creeping north and east for the last couple of weeks. And as a result, Leanne's parents' cabin was put in the line of that fire. They were told they were going to have to evacuate. It happened pretty quickly. The fire fire spread over the course of a couple of days. And uh, and they were told that all the roads were going to be closing. And for two days, we anxiously watched these news reports as the fire kept moving north and east, wondering Is the house going to burn down? How close is the fire? What's going to be the end result of this? And then Monday, I think it was Monday of this week, came the news report that the firefighters had commenced backburn operations to get ahead of the fire. And as a result of their efforts, these homes were going to be spared, that the fire was not going to burn down the houses. And their house was saved. And that was good news. We rejoiced over that. But you have to understand, my in-laws didn't do anything. They didn't accomplish any part of this. They just received the good news that their house was not going to burn down. The firefighters did all of the hard work to accomplish the salvation of the home. And there was nothing left for her parents to do but just enjoy the good news that had come to them. And so the gospel is the good news that because Jesus is God and he died and he rose from the dead, we can be saved through his work, his grace, his kindness. Through repentance, through trusting that this good news is true, that it reveals the one true God who loves us, we receive salvation freely as a gift. Man, if only more Muslims could hear that good news. And it's all about God. It's all about what he has done. And so the gospel is the good news. Jesus and Jesus alone saves. But it's not as if the gospel ends there, okay? After we receive this good news, it it goes to work on us. It changes us. 
It shapes us. It affects us. It, it, it works itself out in us. In particular, it turns us into people who love to celebrate this good news. When we understand this good news, we can't help but rejoice. I love the name of happy, right? He's come to understand the good news, and he wants to be called happy. We burn with a desire to give God thanks, to express our gratitude to him, to exclaim how great he is, how wonderful and incredible this thing that he has done for us is, without any assistance by us. He did not need our help. He did not need our support. He did not need our contribution. He did it all. And we exclaim how great is our God, and that is worship. So I've got another definition here. Worship is our love and gratitude expressed to God for everything He has done because of who He is. It is the acknowledgement of His glory. Let me read it again. Worship is our love and gratitude expressed to God for everything He has done because of who He is. It is the acknowledgement of His glory. Now, I admit this is the Grady Root definition. I didn't take this from a textbook or a dictionary. But do you see what's conspicuously missing from my definition? Do you notice what's not there? There's no mention of music. There's no mention of singing. Because that's not actually worship. That is one particular form of worship and a significant form of worship. But worship can also be listening to preaching. You are worshiping right now if your heart is responding to the good news that Jesus loves you. It can be reading your Bible. That can be worship. It can be fellowship with other Christians. That's worship. Worship is expressing our love and gratitude to God. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so if we obey Jesus, that too is an act of worship. In fact, anything that acknowledges the glory of God in any form is worship. And our whole lives as Christians are meant to be an expression of our awe and our gratitude and love for God in response to this good news of what He has done. Standing here singing on Sunday morning, that is great. It is. But that's only a shadow of what worship really is. The substance of our worship is not in the sound of our voice. It's not in the posture of standing up before God. The substance of worship is in our hearts, where the very core of who we are humbly bows before God, who has done this thing for us. And we express to Him our awe and our wonder, our joy and our satisfaction, our thanksgiving and our adoration, our love and affection for Him alone. That is the true substance of worship. It's not in the ecstatic emotion that you might feel in the music. That's actually more about us and what we want to feel. Worship is also not dependent upon the excellence of the band, as good as it may be, because that's more about human performance than what God has accomplished. Neither is worship in the act of moving our lips or the vocal vibration of our lungs. 
Worship instead is the quiet satisfaction of a heart when it resonates with Jesus. That's worship. Worship is not primarily a physical act. It's a spiritual act in response to the good news of the gospel. So let's look at a few different verses now. Forgive my long introduction. As we continue to reflect on how the gospel works to produce worship in us. Open your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 4. I'm going to make you flip around a little bit through this series, so another reason why I encourage you to bring your Bible. John 4, starting in verse 23. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and she brings up the fact that Jewish people worship at the temple in Jerusalem, But the Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim. And which is correct? Jews believed that worship of God could only effectually happen in the temple where the Spirit of God was said to dwell. And the Samaritans instead said it had to be Mount Gerizim because that's where Israel first worshipped God when they came into the Promised Land. And she's wondering which, which is the best place? Where do we actually go? And Jesus corrects her by saying, worship is not primarily about a location. It's not about a place that you go to. And I think we could expand his meaning, we could expand his application and add that worship is not primarily about a physical act that you do, a posture or a song. It's not about a place or a band. As Jesus explains, God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And those are the substance of worship, spirit and truth. These are matters of the heart. They're the substance of our being that corresponds with being made in the image of God, who himself is spirit. More specifically, to worship God in spirit is to have fellowship with God through the movement of his own Holy Spirit living in you dwelling deep in the heart and soul of every born-again Christian. To worship God in spirit is to transcend a merely physical experience, the material realm, to actually meet with God in spirit. And it can be done anywhere, so long as the spirit of who we are is seeking the spirit of God. In other words, our hearts can rejoice and worship before God for the grace that he has saved us in any place because that kind of worship is born in us through God himself who is spirit indwelling us. And truth then means that the outward sign of our worship should rightly correspond with the reality of our heart in praise. Jesus said he is the truth, so to worship God is to approach God through Christ himself, through the saving work that he has done for us. 
through his holiness and his righteousness which have been gifted to us. Okay, I see a couple faces of sort of like, you kind of lost me, Grady. Fair enough. Let's make it a little more simple, a little more practical and not so abstract. Let's talk about how the gospel works in worship. If you come to church to gather with other Christians for the preaching of the word of God and fellowship and singing songs of worship, and you stand like we routinely do, maybe almost religiously do, and you sing loudly, but you have in your heart unconfessed sin, or you have in your life repeated patterns of disobedience to Jesus which don't trouble you. You can have the loudest voice in the room, but you're not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Because the substance of your worship, the state of your heart, it's out of line with God. Even if your mouth and your body appear to be doing all of the right Christian things. Nobody's perfect, that's true. But if you're not striving and fighting and laboring to live a life of holiness and put to death sin in you and honor the God who has saved you through loving obedience and you come to church to sing songs, I'm sorry, but that is not worship that is acceptable to God. It may look like worship, but it's not worship in spirit and in truth. Psalm 51 tells us that worship that pleases God is a broken heart, a sorrowful spirit, a soul that knows its depths of need for grace, a heart that is in distress when God is far and is in elation when God is near. And so if your heart doesn't align with the words that you're singing, or maybe you don't even mentally think about the words because you've sung the song so many times it just comes out of you. If your mind is not thoughtful about the worship that you bring to God, then I encourage you, don't stand and don't open your mouth. Sit quietly while others sing around you. And instead, confess your sin to God and receive His grace. And find once again the joy of worship in knowing the gospel of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. You would be better off letting the gospel quietly go to work on your heart than mindlessly singing songs at church. Because real worship for God in spirit and truth, when, when you're far from God, real worship to God in spirit and truth is to simply humble yourself before him and express your need for him. God's not interested in outward signs of worship that have nothing to do with the substance of spirit and truth. To try and say it more clearly, worship is not first and foremost physical. It is first and foremost spiritual. And so look at your heart. In Matthew 15, 8, Jesus condemns the Jews by saying, their mouth or this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. Has that ever been you, honoring Jesus with your lips while your heart is far from him? 
Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, a holy life, a serious pursuit of Jesus, a renunciation of sin, a repentant heart, these are all necessary things in order for our songs to actually have any meaning. We need to get these things right first before we stand up on Sunday morning and we sing. Because real worship is a joyful, broken, thankful, humble response to the good news. Now let's get back to the main idea of how the gospel works. Because at the heart of our worship is a declaration of the glory of God in the gospel. Worship is proclaiming the goodness of God in who he is and what he has done. We see this most clearly in the songs of God's people, whether it's the psalm that Chrissy read for us or where I'm going to take us, which is to the end of all things in Revelation where the people of God are gathered with the angels to proclaim his beauty. So turn there with me to Revelation 5. And we're going to just fly through a couple of songs as I close. Revelation 5, verse 12. It says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Here we see a throng of creatures, all made by the hand of God, from the elders around his throne to the angels, and if you keep reading later on, every creature in all of creation. And in this short song of worship and praise, they get to the very core of the gospel, the good news, don't they? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That is to say, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect Lamb of God, is deserving of all glory and all honor and all blessing. Because although he was perfect and sinless from eternity past, he humbled himself, became a man, endured the shame of sinners and evil men alike, and willingly gave his life so that all who repent and believe that he is the Son of God might be redeemed. Brothers and sisters, if we never sang another song of worship ever again and we only sang these words for all eternity, it would be enough. If we really understood even a hint of what this means in spirit and truth, we would never tire of saying the words, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Because this is the good news at the core of our salvation. Jesus is worthy of praise because of who he is and what he has done. Keep going to Revelation 15. Verses 3 through 4. <clears throat> it 
Revelation 15, 3 says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. One of the things that I hate about topical preaching is that all of these verses and passages of Scripture come come to the front, and, and you just don't have enough time to give them anything but a little bit of attention. But do you see here what the saints are proclaiming? They sing the song of the Lamb declaring the glory of God, pointing out the amazing deeds of salvation which God has wrought, which echoes the psalm that we heard read earlier. The saints broadcast praise about the just and true nature of God. They extol the holiness of Him who is perfect and eternal. And they worship that this God who is spirit and truth has revealed himself to be the righteous judge of all. This is worship. And it has nothing to do with us at all other than the simple fact that this God has showed us kindness in heaping his judgment for sin on his own son so that we might then be called the children of God. They acknowledge that he alone is good and holy, that he alone is glorious, and they worship him for the saving act of redemption through the lamb that was slain. That's the gospel, and their praise is a response to that. Last passage, turn to Revelation 19. Starting in verse 6, you can see there, it says, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Many years ago when I was in college, I had a, a friend of mine, and she got pregnant before she was married. And so she was actually pregnant as she walked down the aisle to marry her fiancé. And her grandparents, being very traditional and somewhat legalistic, demanded that she not wear a white dress so that she could acknowledge on her wedding day the sin that she had committed because she wasn't a virgin. So they had this kind of off-white, charcoaly-colored, charcoaly-tinted dress for her. And the fact is, on the great day of the marriage of the Lamb to his bride, the church, which is us, we should be clothed in an off-white, charcoaly-tainted dress, shouldn't we? Acknowledging our impurity and our sin before a holy God, the only one who upheld the vows of commitment. But praise and thanks be to the Lord our God that because of the purity of the groom, Jesus Christ, we will be clothed in his righteousness, granted the right to wear fine linen, bright and pure because of his just and righteous deeds. And this is why we worship, because our sins are no longer counted against us. Because we are saved and we are redeemed. Because we are forgiven and no longer lost, but we are found. But flip all those things around for a second. 
because we can even take ourselves a notch lower and lift the name of God yet higher still. All of those things I said focus primarily on us and what we have received, don't they? It's okay for us to acknowledge and celebrate we should do that because we are the beneficiaries of a great inheritance. But let's put the emphasis where it rightly belongs. Not on us who have been saved, but on him who is the Savior. We worship because God is Savior, because God is Redeemer, because God is the Forgiver who has sought us out to bring us home. We praise the Lord because he's good and kind and true and just, almighty, eternal, holy, and righteous. We exalt the Lamb of God because He alone is worthy. Because He willingly laid down His life and shed His blood to claim a people for His own name and glory. Friends, it is right for us to worship this God. Not merely with songs of praise on Sunday morning, but with lives of holiness as we desperately pursue Him. It is right for us to worship this God because he alone is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Not just for the things that he has done, although that alone would be sufficient, but also for who he is, eternal God, creator, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Let me pray. God, what words could we bring that would ever be sufficient to declare your glory? And so we bring more than words. We bring hearts of praise. We bring lives of holiness. We bring minds attentive to your goodness. And Lord, even this is not enough. God, I pray that you would make us into a people who worship you in spirit and truth, not merely with words and songs, but with the obedience of love, with the joy of the Spirit, with the hope of salvation in you. I pray that out of our mouths would come words that are true about who you are and that those words would truly reflect the state of our heart before you. God, teach us how the gospel works to make us worshipers of the Lamb who is worthy. Amen.